Hi folks, this is Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Arlington, Texas, today with episode 564, it is a Monday, November the 6th, 2010. We're going to do Feedback Monday. These are your questions, comments, stories for uh, that you want me to comment on, commentary, things like that. Uh, you send that to jack at the survivalpodcast.com, jack at the survivalpodcast.com with the subject line question for Jack, even if it's just a story link you want me to look at and comment on, and I will see about getting it on the show. I'll always remind you guys to get about... Oh, probably 300 emails a day that are in this vein. Uh, totally email count of relevant actual emails, about a thousand a day. So I don't get them all on the air. I, when I get like 10 of one thing, I try to move it up. You might want to, if you're really trying to get me to talk about something, call the call-in number. You're more likely to get on a Friday show than this one. But keep the stuff coming. Just understand I can't get to everybody, and the squeaky wheel gets the grease. If you haven't heard your question answered after a week or two, send it again. Maybe I'll get to it. All right, with that, before we get into your questions and feedback, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today, MERS-radio.com. That's M-U-R-S hyphen Thord Radio.com. MERS Radio is a great way to combine your secondary communications and your security. We even had a listener on Friday mention that he heard my sensor go off in the background uh, during one of the shows recently, and it was the dog trying to get away, not a bad guy that needed some buckshot. But that's what's really cool. With MERS, I have a secondary means of communication with five primary frequencies and five sub-frequencies. Uh, communication range of about a mile to two miles in most situations. In ideal situations, maybe you'll get more. Um, but it's really for you know communications on your property uh, or slightly off your property, depending on the size of it. But then wiring in these these motion detectors so that you know if there's someone or something on a certain part of your property that can go to a base station. So you have handhelds and base stations. And the fact that you heard it in the background of the show means I really do use it, just like I say I do. Uh, I recommend you check them out. Next up today, backyard food production. That's Marjorie down in Austin. We've got special news about Marjorie. Marjorie will be on the show on the 15th of December. That's the middle of next week. She'll be here to talk about all the great things you can learn from her DVD. Uh, I really recommend you check out the Backyard Food Production DVD. If you haven't already gotten a copy, get one. If you have anybody in your life that's in the permaculture, farming, gardening, raising small livestock, or anything like that, get the Backyard Food Production DVD and give it to them for Christmas. I promise you, they'll like it. Uh, next up. Uh, check out our gear shop, and I wanted to let you know, big announcement, the AOCS Copper Rounds are now available for pre-order. We expect them to ship sometime around the beginning of January, first, second week, somewhere in there. Um, we are taking pre-orders on them now. The more pre-orders we get, the more we'll do for the initial run. The run's going now. Uh, uh, we're kind of like first in line on this next run with Rob at AOCS. But with the response we're getting, we're thinking about ordering more than 5,000 pieces. Over 2,000 pieces have already been ordered. Uh, people are really digging these things. Uh, in small quantities, they're like a buck and a quarter a coin. And in large quantities, they are about a dollar a coin. Rob will actually be on the show uh, on Thursday this week uh, to talk about setting up private barter economies, the new AOCS copper rounds, and all other good stuff. So lots more interviews coming, if you haven't noticed lately. Uh, some other stuff, just to, while we're talking about that. 
Uh, I've got Cam Mather that will be on the show Wednesday this week. Cam Mather, of course, uh, very well known for his books on living off-grid and growing your own food, lives off-grid in the wilds of Canada right now. He's been on before. I'm going to have him back on this week. And I have a gentleman uh, that I'm going to be bringing on that teaches primitive skills and primitive trapping skills that has put together a new uh, course for learning how to adapt all those things to urban survival. He'll be on um, Tuesday of next week, and then again Marjorie on Wednesday of next week. So, man, I've got it lined up for you. I'm really trying to expand the show. Uh, last but not least, if you dig this show, if you think it's worth 20 cents an episode, consider joining the Members Support Brigade. Do that. You get exclusive content available only to members. Uh, and again, you support the show at about two dimes an episode. You get a ton of discounts. It's a great deal. Consider joining the MSB. I'll leave it at that. Uh, I wanted to wrap through this real quick today because I have kind of a personal announcement for you guys today about what's going on in my life with my big move to Arkansas and all. I want to kick the show off with that because there's some things in it that I'm really proud about, even though they're not things I've done. Um, my son has kind of kicked around the idea, do I want to go or do I want to stay? And he really likes his life here. And, you know, he wants to be able to come up there whenever he wants to, but, you know, he's doing good with work, he's doing good with school, he's got lots of friends, he wants to stay here in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. Well, he's taken the step, found himself an apartment and leased it, so that's taken care of. So uh, we're helping him put together kind of his first own place, and we're, I'm really proud of that. Not actually moving till January, but we're helping him pick stuff out and all, and Hopefully he doesn't hear me because we've picked out a few household items for him for his housewarming that are part of his Christmas. But uh, I'm proud of him for that. I'm also proud of him for a couple other things I wanted to share with you that fit right in with what we talk around on the show. One, he's worked his ass off at his job, uh, primarily working to go orders for four years at the same job, and he's busted his ass. And that's resulted in him getting a promotion to bartender at the on the border that he works at. Um, for a 21-year-old kid, big promotion. Big increase in income, and we can feel good knowing now he's going to be able to support himself while we're not here. Uh, so I am very, very proud of him for that. I'm also proud of him because he's thinking about buying about $2,500 worth of furniture for his new apartment. Uh, and he's agonizing over spending the cash because he has the cash because he's been saving his ass off while he's been working his ass off. And he's not even thinking about, you know, get it for $29 a month. Um, so I'm proud of the boy. And, uh, you know, if you guys want to, maybe just... Uh, Give me a, a favor today and comment in the show notes today and tell them you think he did a good job. It means something when you hear it from other people. All right, so with that, let's go ahead and get into the uh, the show's uh, topic today. I've got a bunch of stuff for you today, some good, some not so good. This one's not good. It doesn't really affect us in America yet, but it's something to think about. This article came out on Wednesday, December 1st, 2010 on the economicpolicyjournal.com, and it's called Disappearing Bank Accounts. It was sent to me, let's see, I always try not to forget that, by a guy named Carlton. Carlton sent this in. Um, no commentary from Carlton, just a link. Disappearing bank accounts. If you don't have money outside the computerized banking system, you should do so now. You just never know when a system is going to go down. At such a time, the person who doesn't have cash will be calling the tune, whatever that means. Remember, he who has the gold makes the rules. Below, Simon Black reports on the major malfunction at one of Australia's largest banks by Simon Black. It all started a week ago. National Australia Bank, one of the largest in the country, had a technical malfunction in its core system. Within hours, a simple problem had practically brought a large part of Australia's banking system to its knees. It was a crazy turn of events. You see, banks don't use regular operating systems or database applications. They run specialty software that is intended to synchronize complex operations like cash deposits, overnight interbank drafts, central bank facilities, electronic transfers, credit card monitoring, 
monitoring and a host of other sensitive data. In other words, you're doing all kinds of stuff with your bank account all the time, and when you do something in Sheboygan on a trip, it has to justify with your bank account back in Jacksonville, Florida. And if somebody's doing an automatic draft that you've signed up for to pay your bill with, and it's a different number every month because it's an electric bill, and it's being done by your electric company, but they're based in another state, that also has to be synchronized. Everything has to justify against each other so that you don't have the ability to spend money you don't have out of your bank account and end up negative, and all your information has to be kept private. So back to the article. When something goes wrong, it can throw the entire system into disarray, and customers end up getting hurt. In NAB's case, a corrupt file overloaded the bank's payment system, and this single failure eventually cascaded to other parts of their operation. Much to their surprise and fury, many customers found their account balance has been blotted out. Automatic payments, mortgages, car payments, insurance premiums had not been drafted, and payment cards no longer functioned. I'll let you read the rest of the article if you want to. Here's what I'm saying. If all your eggs are in one basket and something falls on the basket, all your eggs get broke. All right, this is the same that I say with investments. This is the same that I say with your assets. You don't put everything in one place. Even with your cash that you're going to keep in the bank, I think it makes a lot of sense, folks, for if you have, if you're not just running, you know, kind of your, your, your checking through there where you're kind of making the end of the month meet and I mean, you know, you don't have room to do this. But if you have significant assets, anything more than a few thousand dollars in savings, have two bank accounts in two totally separate, independent, not affected by each other banks. And have some money in cash, and have some money in gold, and have some money in silver, and have some food in your house, and have all the other things that you need that you can't get with cat without cash. Right? Or you can't get when you don't have money. Or when the system's down. See, it's all interrelated. I want you to think about this, though. <sighs> Eventually they fix this, but there are things that happen to computers where you can't fix them, where they're gone. How would people prove how much money they had? How long would it take them even if they got the money back to get the money back? See, here's the thing. Since the money doesn't really exist anymore, since all the money in every industrialized nation everywhere is nothing but a phantom number created by a central bank, since in the United States, for instance, if we took all of the money and said, okay, let's get all the cash and put it in one room. We'd have a huge pile of cash, but it would only be 3% of the total United States dollars that are, quote, in existence, unquote. 3% is in paper. 3%. The rest of it is in numbers and accounts. How vulnerable does that make us? Now, does that mean you go, oh, Jack said the banks are going to fail. Run out, take all your money out of the bank. No, don't be a retard, please. You know, don't act like that. Don't freak out. I'm not putting another dime in the bank. The, the banks have a purpose. Go with a smaller bank, an independent bank, a local bank, or a credit union or something like that. But definitely don't put all your money into one bank. That's as foolish as putting all your money into one stock or all your money into tax deferred or all of anything in any place. Again, you put all your eggs in one basket and something falls on the basket, all your eggs get broke. Alright, so uh, I will put a link to this story in today's show notes. Make sure you check it out. Um, this story I have to bring online because I've got it from not 10 people, but about 100. And uh, I'm looking at this particular email came from Eric. And Eric says, Jack, take a look at this gun control story. I didn't realize how crazy the leadership in New Jersey was. I knew we had nut jobs in California, but this has got to stop. This is a, can a, a candidate for the AC Award. And by AC Award, he means the Ass Clown Award. And I think that the judge is the Ass Clown here. Um, I'm going to kind of give you the short version of this um, this story instead of reading it to you. 
Uh, a guy named Brian uh, Atkin, who's 25 years old, he's a media consultant, stand-up guy, never been in trouble with the law, had moved from Colorado to New Jersey. And he was getting ready to move. And he had a couple handguns and some ammunition and things like that in the trunk of his car. They were in the trunk of his car, they were properly secured, and they were locked up. One of the things that he's been tried for is having hollow-point ammunition, which in itself is a crime in the state of New Jersey. Uh, But he's also been charged with illegally transporting the weapons. Because you have to have either a permit or be going someplace to use the weapons, like hunting or target shooting or moving in the state of New Jersey. Brian made a comment to his father or his mother, it's his father, that sounded like maybe he was depressed or something like that. And, uh, and, and basically they called the police and said they were worried about him. He was pulled over en route to his new place to live. They got the guns out of his, tr- his trunk. His trunk. Arrested him and charged him with illegal transportation of weapons. Now, in most states that have sanity, this wouldn't even be a crime. Nobody would even care. Um, here's the big thing. The judge in this case, who that I am gonna get the name for you, Uh, hold on real quick. James Morley is this judge. And the big problem I have with the judge is that the defense wanted to say, hey, this guy was moving, let us present the evidence. The judge said, no, he wasn't moving. The exemption doesn't apply. But I think that the jury should be entitled to hear the facts and make the decision. That's that's one problem I have here. This guy's also apparently a big-ass clown, and it doesn't really go into specifics, but there was some kind of an animal, animal cruelty case that he ruled on kind of in a weird way that involved something about having oral sex from calves. And that shows poor decision. And apparently Governor Christie's firing this ass clown at the end of the term. But how long is this guy going to jail for having two handguns in his trunk locked up and secured? Seven freaking years! in a New Jersey penitentiary for guns he legally possessed, legally owned, and legally bought because he was transporting them illegally by having them in his trunk of his car securely locked and unloaded. And the jury was not permitted to hear all the facts in the case. Uh, I'd like to see this guy get out of prison. I'd like to see Governor Christie do something for him. If Governor Christie's half the man he claims to be, then he'll do it. I doubt he will, because most politicians are full of shit anyway. But the big problem here isn't only that the guy wasn't allowed to present his full case. It isn't just that he was sentenced for seven years for doing something that was of no threat to anybody. It's that it's even illegal to have a gun unloaded and locked in the trunk of your car at any time in the state of New Jersey if it's a gun you legally own and possessed. This is nonsense. This is why you people in states that are still free, when you hear any inkling of gun control legislation being brought to your state, you fight it tooth and nail, even if it sounds reasonable. We have over 20,000 laws affecting firearms ownership on the books in the United States of America today. Probably 19,500 more than we need. No more to hither thou shalt come and no further. Always, always support the Second Amendment. This is an example of why. Let's take another question. You have to kind of... uh key myself down because this next question is really cool and I have a really cool answer for it so I don't want to be any of that anger in me uh, when I answer this this comes to me from Jim Jim says Jack can you help me come up with a good explanation for giving silver to my nieces as gifts I'm giving them their first pieces of silver this Christmas and would like to tell them in a way they can understand also what is a good way for them to store uh, to help store them as kids my nieces are 7 and 11 thanks for all you do Jim well here's what I would say I would say, you know, Uncle Jim's giving you this silver, and he wants you to know something about it. 
Back when your grandfather was a little boy, if he had a silver coin just like this one here, it would have been worth about $1. Today it's worth about $30. And that means that the silver is still the same thing it always was. It's just like it is today. It looks the same. But it's become more. It's become worth more over time, even though it didn't change. And I think that's what you're going to do as you grow up. As you grow up, you're going to have more and more people depend on you. You're going to have more and more people that you care about, more and more people that you want to take care of. And you're going to be, as you grow into an adult, you're going to become more than you are now. But you're still going to be the same person, the niece that Uncle Jim loves. So I wanted you to have this little piece of silver here so that it could grow and become more along with you. So I want you to take very good care of it. Because in the future, when you have little kids and, and, and grandkids maybe someday, or nieces and nephews like Uncle Jim does, you're going to have to take care of them. And one of the ways that we do that is by making sure that we have enough money to do things like pay bills and go do fun things. So this silver coin will grow along with you. And Uncle Jim will be dropping one in your hand from time to time. So make sure you take it to your mom and dad and help them and have them help you put it in a very safe place. Make sure you keep all of them. And one day, you'll realize how special these really are. As far as how to take care of them, hey, you know what? Go out and buy a $50 firebox and give that to them too. You'll have to buy a you know, little one. You'll buy them a lot of coins before they run out of space with that. And uh, that way at least they'll be safe. And they'll have an understanding of security and value as well. Maybe it's not something you can do for all your nieces and nephews uh, at one time. But I would rather you do that, if you're really going to make this kind of a ritualistic thing, uh, than have them put it in mom and dad's box. I want them to be able to open it. I want them to be able to look in there and see it. And, you know, I really never thought of that, but I guess I need to get one for uh, my niece and nephew, a little box, uh, to put their special things in like that. The coins that Uncle Jack gives them. And uh, the other things that they have that they individually see as valuable. I want them to take the things that maybe don't have a lot of monetary value but mean something to them. And I want to put them in the same place. I want to instore that, instill that, that sense of value in them at a very young age. And I want that to continue to grow with them. And I know that in their mid-teens they're going to be more concerned with a party or a text message or Johnny or Debbie, right, than they are with things like that. But the thing that I know about kids that I've watched as my own son has grown up is the things that you instill in them when they're young, even when they walk away from them for a while and don't think they're that important, they're like a boomerang, man. They hook back around and they come right back. And when they hit that path as they get older, they tend to stay on it. And they might stray from time to time, but there's always this pull inside them, pulling them back to that right path. It's a great way to put kids on the path. That's why I think silver coins should be a better option for gifts than a plastic doll or yet another outfit or something else like that. That's why my niece and nephew get one every Christmas from Uncle Jack. Let's go ahead and take another question. Well, this one's more of a story. I'm just going to read it to you. It'll jive with a question I'm going to get to later that's kind of a deep question. Uh, this comes from, well, um, I guess we'll call him S. I'm not going to give his last name, and it looks like his email is S and his last name at Gmail. So I'm just going to say S. Here's what he says, Jack, so my brother-in-law always made fun of me. Are you preparing for the end of the world when he saw what I have in the trunk of my SUV, completely full with everything I need to survive for a week? We live in, Seattle, in the Seattle area, and he went to work about three hours away from home. On the way there, a winter storm came in with snow. Temps dropped uh, to 12 degrees, 
wind gusts were strong enough to take the power to the bunkhouse and most of the town out. All the food he had was for a day, which he shared with his co-workers as they planned to go out to eat for work. He was driving a Civic and couldn't get around in the snow. He told me he was thinking if only he had my Coleman cooktop, propane heater, food, water, and Coleman lantern, from me, he'd be happy. He spent the night with no heat in a dark room. The bunkhouse only has an electric heater, microwave, and beds. No other extras like a normal home. He was now going, he's now going to set up his car with some basics and he sees how simple things can, that can happen and have nothing to do with the end of the world. I got a good laugh out of the story when he says, I was telling my coworkers I wish I had my brother-in-law's SUV. We'd be warm fed and with light. So, I think that that's a great story that you can tell people when they say, why do you do all this stuff? Here's a perfect example. Guy's just going off to work out of town, got himself a day's worth of food. I mean, that's actually more than most people would do, and he ends up miserable. And if he had basic preps, he would have been warm, fed, slept well, had some light. I mean, you know, probably had some communications and entertainment as, along with it. This kind of stuff happens every day. Share those stories when people ask you why that you do the things that you do. Uh, next one, this comes from Logan. I love getting questions like this from young people. Dear Mr. Spirico, uh, Logan, call me Jack, man. Mr. Spirico's my dad. Uh, my name is Logan. I'm 17. I live in Colorado, not too far from Boulder. I've been interested in survivalism prepping for about a year and a half now, but only recently discovered TSP. I really enjoy it, and you're really doing a great job. I have some questions about starting out as an adult with a sustainable survivalist prepper lifestyle in mind. I'll be joining the military after graduating high school, not only from the, for the primary and obvious reasons such as serving my country and doing something with a meaningful, uh, with meaningful in my life, but for financial benefits of saving most of my income because my needs are taken care of and the chance to get some very good and practical skill training once I get out of the of the military, it's my dream to learn a trade slash craft and move to Montana, set up my own business, and live on a large piece of rural property in a trailer while building my house. So any advice, tips, starting up financially, picking a trade, craft, uh, building a sustainable house, homestead, and lifestyle would really be appreciated. Again, any advice you can give me would be much appreciated. Thanks for your time on the podcast, Logan. Okay, Logan, let's, uh, there's like basically how do I go forward with my life from here is the question, and I can't give you all those answers. Let's break it down to a few things I know I can help you with. Let's start out with the military. I think it's great that you're going in the military. I think that when you go in the military, there's going to be some things you're very proud of, and I think there's going to be some things that are going to be eye-opening as well. Um, I would suggest to you that you don't join the military and just necessarily go into combat arms or something like that if you're into survivalism. You may very, very well be disappointed with how practical some of the things you learn in that respect are not in the civilian world. Some will be, some won't be, and I have nothing against combat arms, but unless it's really, really, really what you want, um, really consider trying to figure out what kind of craft or trade you'd like to go into and what military job would give you a basis in understanding that trade or craft uh, now. And they don't have to be directly related. For instance, I was a mechanic in the military. I can't tell you how, how much that helped me in the world of computers and the world of networks and the world of sales. Because what did I learn as a mechanic? What was my fundamental real skill? Troubleshooting. There is a problem, and then there is a process to diagnose the problem. And that, 
I didn't know when I was 17, like you, and joined the Army, was going to be something that stayed with me for the rest of my life. But I use that skill every day in helping to look at people's problems when they send them to me or say, you know, say, what do I do next or how do I do this? That's the process that I use for TSP every day. Is the troubleshooting process I learned as a young man, as a mechanic in the military. It's evolved. It's changed. It's got 25 years of life experience behind it now. Uh, that weren't there when I was a young man, but it, that fundamental process carried all the way through. So try to link those things up. The next thing I'm going to tell you is I, w I had the same idea you did. I'm going to go in the Army. I'm not going to have rent. I'm not going to pay for food, and I'm going to come out flush with you know $30,000 in cash after two years. Uh, it didn't happen. came out with a couple thousand dollars in cash because I blew most of my money partying and running around with the guys, and basically being in places like Panama and missing home so much Uh, spending my time out chasing girls in the bars. And actually, the, the, if you guys want to know or even care, the, uh, the American bar on post chasing American women, I wasn't big on uh, going out into, let's say, the native population with that little endeavor because it seemed like everybody there wanted a green card. Um, so be careful with that. If I could go back and do it again and I wanted to come out financially better off than I did, I would say come up with, cl take classes. While you're in the military, as long as you're not in like a combat zone or something like that, there'll be opportunity to take tons of classes for little to no money. Take every single class you can get. Occupy your time with productivity that's low cost. Come up with low cost hobbies that you can engage in. Um, don't just do the PT in the morning. Go to the, there'll be a great workout facility on any post that you're on. Uh, go there, work out. Um, when we went to Honduras, we didn't have that, so we built our own. Uh, we used cutting torches and we made a barbell set. We made a bench and we did things like that. You know, work out with fitness. Do things that cost you little to no money and occupy your time. That's the only way you're going to come out two, four, five years later with a lot of money because the problem for soldiers is we get sent to places that are so unfamiliar to us and we miss home and we try to create a sense of normalcy and we do that by blowing the little bit of money that they pay us. So that would be my advice while you're in the military. Long term, I think if you come out with enough money, your, your your idea, your dream is very, very valid, very doable. As for what skill to go into, you have to make that decision up. Find your passion, young man. Ask yourself, when are you most happy? And then find a way to link that to what you do for the rest of your life. If it's fishing, be a fishing guy. Don't let anybody tell you you can't do it. My buddy Hal did it. You know what? Uh, we lost him at, at a young age of 41, but he had a very fulfilling life because he chased his dream. And there's a lot to be said for that. So make sure that whatever the skill set you do is you don't do it because you think it'll be valuable uh, in a down economy or valuable if the shit hits the fan or valuable in an up economy. This is the day and time where people really can do whatever they choose. But it's up to you to be creative. That's the best I can do. Let's go ahead and take the next question. Um, This one kind of justifies back to the guy that just sent an email about benefits for preparedness. Uh, this comes from Ryan. And um, here's what he has to say. Jack, I've called in in the past, asked questions, and would have done so just that I thought if I could cover this broad topic in 90 seconds. My name is Ryan. I'm a U.S. Marine Reservist. My father is a firearms instructor, teacher since 2006, a survivalist. The reason I'm writing you this evening is because I'm not sure what to think anymore. I've become used to people unfamiliar with many of the beliefs that you and I share, discounting us as nutjobs. But this new label of extremists seems to be thrown around with little more abandon uh, than I like. 
Recently, I've been conducting ride-alongs with about four different local police departments. I'd like to change careers, and it seems the best way to get my face and name and so on and so forth. Uh, the other night, I was in the squad room with four officers, three of whom I've known for years but are not aware that I'm a survivalist. The topic was a man who works for a local box store. He called to report someone spying on his house. The man is part of a group called the Speak Federal Reservation. There isn't a lot of info about them on the web, but I'm not about to start asking questions. What I understand is the group is a, a group of sovereign citizens claiming autonomy from U.S. And this is where the conversation in the squadron went. At first they referred to the group. There's a total of eight members that display the reservation seal and claim various elected positions, but they're estimated... Uh, to be about 60 locally as constitutionalists. I let the conversation play out between them and pointed out that based on the account of the officer's contact with this man, the man in question had produced a photo ID, concealed weapons permit, law enforcement identification card, and had been issued by a group that has no legitimacy. All the documents produced have elaborate holograms and lamination, in addition to being part of very detailed speech about the reservation over the course of the next few minutes. Other labels such as libertarian, right-wing whack job, religious extremist, survivalist, sovereignist were batted around. At this point, I decided it best to keep my teeth together rather than show my hand and risk exposure even to those two men that I've been friends with for a decade. Today, one of my best friends, the best man at my wedding, set a video on Facebook. It showed two police officers being gunned down by what the narrator called sovereign citizens. The point of the video was very clear, that there are a group of very misguided people out there that are dangerous. As I listened to the man's words, I couldn't help but feel they were talking about me and my friends that I share my ideals with. I fit the profile of those two murderers up to a point. I love this nation, would do anything to defend it and its citizens. It scares me to be a survivalist some days. I really don't want to become paranoid like some characters in certain work of fiction by a prominent survivalist. My pop problem is our lifestyle allows for an amazing amount of independence, yet we are seen somehow disturbed. Self-reliance and self-sufficiency allow for me and my friends who are in the lifestyle to be more independent to, of local and state governments than most. We contribute more in services than others, but we pay less in the way of taxes. One of one way my friends does this is uh, to homebrew biodiesel, so, uh, uh, so no road taxes, and a few others are completely off-grid. Due to trade and barter, we ch were chided for not towing the line and, or mooching. Uh, we share many of the burdens of our peers, but the weight on our shoulders and the strain on our souls is much less, yet we're labeled as zealots. I was turned on your show by a local judge. He is afraid every, that he is afraid every day that somebody will find out his secret and that will end his career. Some of my private clients know that I'm a survivalist, but I only say something after I hear some key things, mostly stuff from your show. Then I'm all out myself. How do we combat bigotry? Or is it even bigotry? Or is it in ignorance? Thank you for reading this. Uh, uh, thank you for reading this. I know that you get a lot of messages every day, and this week I'm just overreacting. Yours truly, Ryan. Okay, here's the thing. Um, I read the whole thing because I think this is a very deep and complex subject, and we need to hear it. This is the reality. Whenever anybody in society stands up and says, I will not conform to everything you tell me I must conform to, it makes everybody else uncomfortable. If that person or group can be pushed into a group of others that are easily villainized, society will try to do it. It is up to us to not totally hide who we are. Now, I'm not saying we walk around and go, well, I'm a survivalist. I, I don't think that's really the way to do it, but I do think that there's something to be said for telling people, hey, I think we all need to be prepared. I think we need to, to make sure that we are doing things for ourselves. 
I think that we need to, when somebody says, well, the Constitution, I mean, what I would have said to these officers as they said it to me is, hey, this guy's not a constitutionalist. He's created his own false government. Right? The Constitution is what you're supposed to uphold and, and, and defend. Make sure you're splitting those into two different worlds. When someone tells an officer about something about the Constitution, I think a lot of times you're making a mistake if you're in a confrontation. If they're going to get pissed off and find a reason to put cuffs on you. you and I've said this before. You don't argue guilt or innocence with the police. You decide as much as you're willing to say at the time, and then you shut up. And if they want to take you in, you argue, argue guilt or innocence in a court of law. And if you're right, most often you will win. And the less you say, the better. But when you're having a private conversation like this, that's a time to say, hey, you know, we do have a thing called the Constitution of the United States. You are supposed to uphold and defend it. Your duty is to our, our federal and our state constitutions. So when somebody is a constitutionalist, that's not a bad thing. These people are ass clowns. And worse, these people are murderers that this guy's talking about. We need, here's the thing, I want you to think about this. In mainstream media all the time, when we hear people bashing Muslims, they say, well, if most Muslims are good, peace-loving Muslims, why won't they step up and condemn people that are terrorists? Well, if we're good, peace-loving survivalists that just want to be left alone, if we're preppers that are preparing for doing without, if we are the people that we say we are, and when the shit hits the fan, we can't help everybody, we'll, we'll step up and help some. If we are not for violating laws with violence, then should we not be the first people to step up and say, these people are not like us, we have no alliances with these people. And if not us, then who? I'll tell you who. People that don't understand us at all, and then we'll get painted and we'll get thrown in. There is a place in your life for operational security. There is a place for not going out and telling every single neighbor, hey, I've got six months worth of food in my house. And even in the conversations I'm suggesting, we need not reveal things that are that personal or intimate. But there's a place to stand up and say who we are. I am starting to really get concerned that people are afraid to say who they are today. I get people, I'd like to display my NRA sticker on my car, but I'm afraid that people will know I'm a gun owner then. And the police will pull me over and blah, 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 and yada, yada. And then they'll take your guns. And everything else that goes with it. And every single thing else that goes with it. Everything that you're afraid to say about yourself will eventually be eroded if no one speaks. So who is to speak if not me and you? Now we have to be smart about the way we speak, but we do have to say something here. You know, when I first started doing this, my brother-in-law, who's a police officer, started talking to me about these guys that ran up in the Davis Mountains of Texas, and these guys were some bad guys. And I said, you know, that's not what this is about, man. That's not what this is about at all. And the reality is that he and I are very much in sync with each other on things like the right to bear arms, about individual sovereignty as well. You'd be surprised at how many people, and I'll tell you what this judge that told this guy about my show, I know who that guy is. I know exactly, I won't say, but I know exactly who that guy is. There is, there absolutely is a place where you need to stand up and say who you are. And I don't think it begins with the words, I am a survivalist. But it does begin with the words, I am an American. I am, an, I am a patriot. And I do value our Constitution. And when that's labeled as extremist, make the person explain how. 
How is it extreme to value the foundational law of our nation? How am I an extremist because I believe in the Bill of Rights? Do you not believe in the Bill of Rights? See, this is how you turn these conversations. Well, you know, they're extremists. They're constitutionalists. Do you not believe in the Constitution? Well, yeah, I believe. Well, what part of the Constitution is bad? Well, there's nothing really bad in the Constitution, but, you know, uh, well, then how is it? Okay, well, these people went and shot people. Does it say you're allowed to go and kill people in the Constitution? No. Okay, then that doesn't make them a constitutionalist. It's just like the radical extremists in the world of Islam using the Koran as an excuse to murder innocent people. You want, and I know a lot of people here that are right-leaning those to this show, would be the first to say, then, the, then that community needs to stand up and condemn that activity. Well, then we in the prepper, self-reliant, self-sufficient, and yes, modern survival community, we need to stand up, and when people put our word on their actions, say, no, that's not us, And we condemn the activity. If we don't do it, again, who will? And if someone else does it, you're going in that group with them. You've got to fight. You've got to fight with intelligence, not anger. With logic and reason, not venom. And when we see someone do something in our name that is not who we are, we must be the first to condemn it. I condemn the actions of these people for murdering people. They have nothing to do with me or anything I stand for. And I'd like to see them all swing from the gallows. Is that good enough? All right, let's take another one before I get too angry. Here's one I've gotten tons of versions of. This is the one I picked. It comes from Clay. Clay says, Jack, seems, seem, uh, stuff seems to be getting pretty nuts, and I would like to hear your opinion on some stuff, mainly the new WikiLink secret documents that just got released about the Fed. The Fed being an international lo loaning agency, basically. Also how our government contract contacted Amazon, and then Amazon stopped hosting WikiLinks on their server. Sounds like what China does. Uh, there is more, just wondering if you're aware and could possibly mention it. Thanks. Okay, um, there's, a, there's actually quite a few things going there. Let's start out with the WikiLinks thing in general. You know what I'm appalled by with WikiLeaks? More than the, all this conf, you know, confidential data being released... That everybody standing up in our government and every watchdog group and on everything from the most liberal MSNBC crap to the most right-wing Fox uh, News crap is talking very little about the information that was actually released. They're talking about the fact that it was released and how do we shut this guy down that did it. Whether you think this guy should be doing this or not, the, the head of WikiLeaks, can't remember his name right now, doesn't really matter, um, that, that's, that's hiding over in Europe somewhere, I think Sweden is where he's at now, um, Whether you think he's right or wrong, evil or a patriot, we also need to say, well, what got released? And things like this, the Fed, our government basically turning into an international uh, lender and lending out our money without telling us in the shadows to all of these nations. Other things that have come out in uh, there, I'll leave the Amazon thing to last because it's a separate thing I want to talk about. But we've also found out in these documents that our government is conducting espionage on nations that are our friends, like Iceland. Espionage on Iceland? Really? If we're going to spy on our friends, what will we do to our enemies? Documents to show that through this Fed lending, we're basically taking impoverished nations and turning them into our financial slaves. And there's more, and it just keeps going, and it's hundreds of thousands of documents. And what I'm saying is, even if it's wrong that it was done, where is the outrage in what our government has been doing behind closed doors that is clearly evil? 
I said it, yes, evil. Where is it? Where is the congressman other than Ron Paul? Where is the senator that's standing up and even saying, yes, we have to put a lid on this. This is dangerous. This could turn into something much. If they can get this data, what other data can we get? And we do have information we need to keep secret. Yes, but this concerns me. This concerns Why are we doing this? It's not there. The voice of outrage isn't there. I put it this way. Let's say two nations were at war. And we won't put any names on them so nobody gets any stigma. Nation A and Nation B. Nation A is conducting a battle. And these are two nations that are looked at as honorable nations in the world that are having a conflict under the rules of war. If that could be such a thing. And Nation A goes in to do cleanup after an operation. And then they murder thousands and thousands of innocent women and children. They line them up and machine gun them and push them into a hole in the ground. And an enemy soldier videos this. And he is the enemy of Army A. But he gets the video out to the command or to the government or to the people of the nation of Army A. Even if those that nation still believes in their cause, even if they believe that they still need to win the war, is it not outrageous that the action occurred? Should the people behind it not be held accountable? Should it not be routed out from Nation A's military? Should there not be outrage, even if the information comes from the hand of an enemy, if it's credible, if you see it in black and white, or in this case is a video in color? Do you not go, this is wrong? So with the information that's come out from WikiLeaks, where is the outrage from the American people? Where is the outrage from our representatives of what the information has revealed? Why is no one talking about that? That's my big problem. Amazon. Uh, there's people that are calling for a boycott of Amazon. Pull your head out of your ass. Really. That's all I can say to you. I'm going to boycott Amazon. Cause, listen, uh, there's, there's, there's fundamental realities that people don't understand. When you are a corporation the size of Amazon, you have a duty to your shareholders to like stay in operation. They were basically strong-armed by the United States government and decided for the best interest is that they're saying, we won't host this anymore. They have a right to do that. They're a private company. WikiLeaks found another place to go get hosted. I'm not required to host your site. And I can, if I'm a web host, I can say for any reason, I don't want your business. If we get to a point where for whatever reason it is that any company can't decide, I don't want you as a customer... What are we going to start doing? Going into these companies with the other extreme? With government agents? Holding, you know, AR-15s, M-16s, M-4s, you know, MP5s? What? Raiding their facilities? Putting a gun to somebody's head? You will provide hosting? I will refuse any customer I don't want at TSP. If I don't, if I don't want you as my customer and you try to give me money, I'll send you the money back and I will tell you I fired your ass as a customer. For whatever reason I choose. Amazon did this, in my opinion, because it was more trouble than it was worth to serve this customer at that point. They didn't, they didn't delete their files. They said, we're going to end our contract and move your files somewhere else. Now, had Amazon gone in and deleted everything, then I'd say we have a real problem. So, that's, a, that's a, such a complex question, uh, thing. But as you're listening to all the talking heads on the radio and the TV and how this guy's dangerous and uh, fine. He is or he isn't. It's up to you to make that choice. These leaks are dangerous or they're not. That's up to you to make that choice. 
But now that it's out there, do we not look at what our government is doing and has done? And do we not start to hold some of these clowns accountable? I'm actually not really surprised at a lot of things that we've learned. These are things that people like me have been telling you they're doing for a long time. And now we have proof. So regardless of where the proof came from, I think it's time that we as a people use the proof and start holding some clowns accountable and start holding our officials accountable and say, you guys need to do something about this. Let's go ahead and take another one. Phil says, can you please tell me what net neutrality is and what it will mean to the average Internet user if it's put into place? Net neutrality is one of those things that both sides are lying to you about. And I don't trust either side. On the surface, the proponent of net neutrality is saying this. What net neutrality does is it requires everybody to be treated the same. Because what large companies want to start doing is double charging for access is what it comes down to. So right now, if you go to my website and you're streaming a video from my website, that's treated the same as if you're streaming a video from YouTube or from any other provider of video. But it's based on how much money I'm willing to spend for my server to provide that service out. But once we once we get out into the cloud, it's based on your service level, and then everything in the between, between your connection and my connection, is treated equally. What service providers want to do, and this is a bad thing, is they want to say, okay, here's what we'll do. Um, you know, YouTube, you can buy priority through the cloud. Or MSNBC, you can buy priority through the cloud. And what that would do is let me pay more money to deliver my content and give preference to my content over other content. We cannot do that without causing the speeds of other people's content delivery to suffer, pushing some people to the front of the line and some people to the back of the line. And since it's based on money, since it's based on money, if these plans are allowed to be rolled out eventually, what happens? Well, what happens is the people with the most money get the best service and the people with the less money get the least service. And this is the content provider side here. This is me. This is anybody as small as me to as big as Amazon, eBay, pushing content out to you. Big companies can buy the access. Small companies can't afford it. And one buys priority over the other, making my performance less and their performance better, even though I pay for my upload speed and you pay for your download speed already. The other side. Right now, there's zero government regulation of the Internet. Once the government goes in and says, we got to prevent this and create neutrality, it opens the door for all additional types of regulation. So the people opposed to net neutrality are saying, don't let them in because once we let them in, we know what they're going to do next. Now, the hype. If net neutrality is passed, you won't be able to have a blog. And crap like that is circulating everywhere. Am I saying that the government will never make an attempt to do that? No, of course they will. They don't like it. They don't like free speech. They hate free speech. Because when they do shit we don't like, we call them on it. But I'm telling you that in this current regulation, it ain't there. And anybody that tells you it is there is lying or ignorant of the facts. What do we do with this? Um, I actually was a big proponent of net neutrality when it first came out. I thought it was a great idea because I understand the risk to the small business owner. The more I thought about it, though, the more my libertarian leanings creeped into it. What we should do is anytime a service provider does that, that creates that segmentation and damages smaller providers, we should go watchdog on their ass and let everybody know and then cause that guy to lose business. So that if you enact 
preferential delivery as a provider, nobody wants your service. The problem with that is uh, Internet access today is largely monopoly in a lot of areas, especially high-speed access. There are places where if you want anything like DSL or cable modem, you have one provider that you could actually get. Sometimes you have two. If they both do it, you don't have a third choice. So the big issue that we have today with net neutrality is that we don't have enough infrastructure in place to allow for choice so that the free market can correct it. The technology that I see is the future of Internet access is something called WiMAX. WiMAX can take huge pathways over 30-mile distances uh, with point-to-point. It will eventually bring high-speed Internet to all but the most remote regions of the United States. When that happens, there's so much bandwidth there that the only reason for this segmentation process to exist, this, this priority delivery process to exist, is that they want to make more money. That's all it comes down to. Because the reality is, again, I'm paying for my server speed up, and you're paying for your connection speed down. This is all about creating fast lanes in the Internet and selling access to them. And that's what the, the, the base of net neutrality is about, preventing that. You have to decide whether you think that's a good idea or not. But in the end, I don't trust the government once they start regulating. I do think the next thing you know, you have to have a license to have a blog and other things like that. But if they don't try it with net neutrality, they're going to try it somewhere. If they were to present net neutrality to me as once and done, uh, the law itself stated it cannot be expanded or, or whatever. you know. But that's unconstitutional because one Congress can't place restrictions on the next co- Congress unless it's done with a constitutional amendment. Um, so the best thing we can do is keep government out of the Internet and let the free market correct. And if small providers are hurt, the outrage, I believe, in time will take care of itself. All right, let's, but what does net neutrality, if it, if it does pass, what will it mean for you two days after it passes? Very little to nothing. Long term, there's a tremendous risk of ever encroaching government interference with our Internet. We don't want them there. That's, that's the best I can do for you. Let's take another one. Okay, we're running long, so I'm going to give you the short version of this one. Um, but this comes to me from Gary. Gary uh, sends me this article. A new discovered reason to avoid fast food and popcorn. Paraflucalils, whatever that word is, uh, which are chemicals used to keep grease from leaking through fast food wrappers, are being ingested by people through their food and showing up as contaminants in the blood. Paraflucalils are stable synthetic chemicals that repel oil, grease, and water. They are used in surface protection treatments for coatings for packages. The specific chemicals studied were polyfluchial phosphate esters, PAPs, which are the breakdown products of perufluoridated carbolic acids used in the coating of food wrappers. Uh, you can read the whole article for yourself. I just want to tell you what the basic premise is. You go to uh, McDonald's or Burger King or wherever and you get that big, juicy, greasy burger that's already bad for you. They wrap it up in paper that's designed to keep the grease from leaking out. While it's in there, the chemicals in the wrapper go into the food and you eat the chemicals. Yay! Going green with getting rid of the little styrofoam cup things. Right? I, I, I mean, this is verified science. Uh, you can't make it up if you want to. Um, how dangerous are these chemicals? Uh, depends on your opinion, I guess. I don't want them in my body, I know that. More stuff from the article, these chemicals can be found in the body of nearly all Americans today, including our children. Um, 
the regulator said the chemicals will not migrate from the paper to the food. The chemicals will not become available in your body, and your body will not process these chemicals. All of those have been proven wrong. Some studies have linked uh, PFCs to infertility, thyroid disease, cancer, immune system problems, and increased levels of cholesterol. So, again, I've always said this. It's not the hamburger that's bad for you. It's what's in the hamburger. But I meant hormones and all kinds of crap and sugar that they put in there to sweeten the grease to make you addicted to it. I didn't know it also included the chemicals from the dadgone wrapper. So, if you're still eating fast food, stop. And this is another reason not to do it. We're, we're, we're now ingesting these, these, uh, these disease-causing pathogenic, carcinogenic chemicals into our bodies simply so we don't have grease come out of the other side of the wrapper. I mean, really, isn't it time that, you know, if we're going to say we're survivalists and we're self-sufficient, self-reliant, that we avoid McDonald's? If you've never watched Super Size Me, for the love of God, watch it. You will avoid McDonald's like the plague once you see Supersize Me. Uh, but this, uh, I think this is bigger than we know already. If these if these chemicals can be detected in the bodies of most Americans, I think that means that maybe there's other places we're getting them other than fast food wrappers. And we need to identify those sources and we need to cut them out of our lives. Again, I'm not a health nut. I don't try to avoid every single toxin on the planet. If I'm over at a friend's house and he doesn't filter his water and I need a glass of water, I'll drink the water with the fluoride in it that one time until I get back home. I'm not paranoid. But this doesn't make any sense to be putting this crap into our body. None at all. So next time the kids want a Happy Meal and you really want to tell them no, now you have another reason. Don't eat this stuff, folks. Let's take another question. Okay, this one comes from Matt. Matt says, uh, Jack, was wondering if you have a thought about investing in heirloom seeds. The emphasis you put on heirloom seeds leads me to think about buying up a bunch of these things and holding on to them for investment application appreciation purposes. I have to admit I haven't spent much time determining the shelf life of these things, uh, the amount of investment and expected return. However, if you're right about Monsanto and genetic seeds that kill themselves, it makes sense that we would want to uh, be worth more than our uh, – that we would want to have a store of heirloom seeds well into the future. Seems they would be worth much more than stocks or other alternative investments. Well, you know, I, I tell you what, here's the thing. I would not, I repeat, I would not invest in heirloom seeds solely for the purpose of a financial return. I think that all of us should have personal seed vaults. Uh, we should all have stores of heirloom seeds, both packaged for long term and for resowing year after year. I think that the most important thing that we can do is be growing the seeds that we store and renewing. Um, our stores every year or at least every two years. Maybe, let's say we're working with two types of squash and we want to be completely pure uh, and they're both the same species so we have cross-pollination issues. Maybe I grow one one year and the other the next year and that way my seeds are always at least two years fresh. Um, buying seeds and, and, and that are you know made for long-term storage, great. Uh, but there's still limitations there and you're never going to be as good as if you have fresh seed. So we kind of combine those elements, uh, but it's about preserving the genetics for ourselves and those that we would exchange and barter with. Could there be a day when seeds are worth an awful lot of money? Sure there could. Absolutely. Should you bet on that? Hell no. Am I going to advise you to go out and spend $5,000 on heirloom seeds and pack them in buckets in your backyard somewhere, buried in a hole in the ground or a cellar or something like that? No, not unless you're a farmer and you can use that many seeds. Uh, if you really think about it, You know, if you're talking about a, an investment of a few hundred dollars or maybe a thousand bucks in a wide variety of seeds, 
fine, but I still say you better be growing some of them every at least every five years. If you have to rotate your crops through based on your space, but you need to be creating new viable reproducible seed year after year after year. If you buy one of the prepackaged long-term seed vaults, fine. And if you want to put that away for 10 years without using it, fine. But don't rely on that as your only source. Again, all your eggs in one basket and something falls on your basket. What happens? All your eggs get broken. So, uh, with, the, with the spirit of the question, do I recommend investing in and storing heirloom seeds? Yes. Do I recommend that you put you know, half your 401k balance into a big store of seeds? Not at all. I think that would be a foolish thing. Again, now we're based, bet, betting on 100% catastrophic failure. And that's all we're betting on. Um, when you go to sell seeds, if you like go in your own little seed business or something, you're going to find that your customers want the freshest seed they can get. So if you're trying to sell them seed that's 10 years old and they can go to a competitor and buy seed that was produced one or two seasons ago, they're going to buy from your competitor as long as there's somebody left to buy from. So when you're doing this as a pure financial play, if you do it in large scale uh, without you know kind of a business where it's going on on an ongoing basis, that's the, the real issue that you're going to run into is that um, you know you're, you're just not you're not scalable like that. So. Store seeds, yes. Store them is like some like a like a vault of gold. Not me, buddy. Uh, and I'm not going to tell you to do that. Uh, next question comes from Robert. Robert says, "I have a question. I can't seem to find much information on. Was wondering if you could help me. My yard is an old farm field. It seems the only thing that really grows well is sunflowers. This year, I planted four currants, eight raspberries, three blueberries, and two nanking bush cherries. Lost them all because of drought and hard sun this year. So instead of fighting nature, I'm going with it." One combination that worked well was sunflowers with squash, so this year I'm going to plant more of that combination. But here's the question. I have many sunflower heads, getting a little, but getting the little buggers out is very hard one at a time. And the method of, wrap, uh, the method of wrapping them in the cloth and hitting them with a flat ha of a hammer than placing them in water is not really much faster. Do you know any faster ways? Is there some kind of uh, way to help this along? Any help is really appreciated. Thanks, man. Well, Robert, here's the first thing I'm going to tell you. Uh, odds are they're not sunflowers. They're Jerusalem artichokes, and that's why they have such tiny seeds, and they're so hard to get out. Look up Jerusalem artichoke on uh, on Google, Robert, and I bet you the little yellow sunflowers that are like a ton of sunflowers on one plant, I bet that's what you have. And what you can do with those is instead of worrying about those seeds, you can dig them up after they die back for the year and dig up tons and tons of tubers, which are kind of sort of like a cross between a potato and a chestnut is the best way I can describe them. And they're awesome for eating, and they're high in protein, and they're very nutritious, and they're a great crop, and they seem like they're growing on your property for free. If it does turn out that you have some other type of a wild small sunflower on there, I'd say consider bringing in some commercial type of sunflower like black oil seed uh, that can be used more as a as a crop for uh, for wildlife feed or larger mammoth sunflowers, things like that. Something that were more uh, easy to get out. Because I'll tell you what, when you grow large sunflowers, it's not a problem. You cut the head off, you let it dry out, and you just take your hand and rub it, and they just fall out. So you're, the, the problem you have is whatever you have growing there, it's not like a commercial variety of sunflower. If <clears throat> sunflower is doing well there, commercial sunflower should do well. Let's talk about your bigger issue. Your bigger issue is that you went out and you tried to put cars on the road before you built the road. You didn't put the infrastructure in. If you're living any place other than a really temperate, really, really wet climate, to think that you're going to grow things like trees and bushes, especially in their first year, without continuous irrigation is, is foolhardy. It's not going to happen. Odds are you could get a, every one of those plants that you lost could have uh, been made to grow if they would have been heavily mulched. And by heavily, I mean four inches of rush, rough and fine mulch around a very big area around them and either drip irrigated or in some way irrigated. 
So if you really want to make the best use of this land and get a kind of a permaculture system set up, you're going to have to focus on infrastructure next. You're going to have to look at, is there any natural uh, water catches in the land that can be used to put in small ponds that can then be used for irrigation with small low-draw pumping or something like that, and using maybe pumping just as, as, a, as an impetus to get the, the fluid moving and using uh, the lay of the land to make the majority of the water flow. Can you go in and create swales? Uh, a swale is a ditch on contour so that you'll hydrate the land and make the best use of whatever irrigation systems that you put in. How much land do you have to work with, etc. How do you, and, and again, you can zone this stuff out. Put the things like bushes and small, like nanking cherries, they don't get that big, and currant bushes and blueberries. Those can be in a zone one, zone two area pretty close to your, your dwelling. And, and make sure that you're putting in the irrigation for those areas first. Get those things established. Put them on the lower part of the land by the dwelling if you have the opportunity to do so. Uh, if you, you use the land to funnel water down toward that area, or if your house is on the high part of the land, use the roof to, to, to create rain catch and funnel it down. And that would be ideal, is to be running water away from the dwelling and out too, so the majority of it gets into the zone one and zone two, and as it further permeates out, you, you put rougher uh, plants that can handle uh, harsher conditions further out. But you've got to build that infrastructure if you're going to have success. Again, back on your sunflowers, I think you've got Jerusalem artichokes most likely. You probably have a tremendous opportunity there, and if you'll take some section where they're growing and irrigate that, they'll do phenomenal for you uh, because they're already doing well without that. And you'll find they'll produce the biggest and most delicious tubers. One thing I'll tell you about them, they are invasive. And wherever you don't want them, you're going to have to take some measures to keep them out. Let's go ahead and take another question. This one comes from Alex. Alex says, hey, Jack, just listen to your show on my way to work. I heard about the guy from Finland who emailed you about forced to being forced to take vaccinations. Hate to tell you, but it's already happening here. I live in a rural area of East Tennessee, and I heard on the local radio station a couple weeks ago that a local health care system is requiring 100% of their employees to take flu vaccinations or be terminated. The only exception would be on religious grounds or for medical reasons it would make the vaccination harmful to the employee. This pissed me off. I am an EMT myself. We don't have to take anything. We're given the option to take hepatitis V vaccines as well as a flu shot, but we're not required to take anything we don't want. So I emailed the Tennessee Department of Health about this. Before, below you'll find the reply. I also emailed my senator, whom I personally know. One of his flunkies emailed me back about it. I'll forward that email to you as well. Would love to hear your opinion on this one. We need to draw attention to this now before they take away more of our rights. Also, I don't get to listen to some of your podcasts due to a very slow internet connection. So if you decide to comment on this one, uh, if you don't mind, let me know. And um, let me read the uh, response from uh, the Tennessee government. Sir, around the county, a growing number of hospital systems are requiring staff to be vaccinated against influenza as patient safety matter, acknowledging appropriate medical and religious consider contradictions. Every year, patients die of influenza. They contact from healthcare workers who work while infectious, even though they may not think they have the flu. This should be seen uh, in line with patient safety mandates like hepatitis B vaccine of the staff and hand hygiene. Requiring in-flu vaccination of people who choose to work providing patient care in order to protect those vulnerable patients is now endorsed by the American College of Physicians. Well, okay, okay, say so. The Infectious Disease Society of America, the Society of Healthcare Etymology, blah, 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 and a lot of people say you should do it. You can check for more information about these policies, uh, endorsements for mandatory healthcare worker vaccinations uh, against influenza at immunize.org slash honor roll. Huh. The State Department of Health has no specific role in these mandates. Thank you for your question, Kelly Moore, MD. Okay, I will say one thing for Kelly Moore, MD. She's right. Her group has nothing to do 
with any individual organization saying, if you're going to work at our hospital or in our system, you're going to have to have these vaccinations. This is very different from what's going on in Finland. In Finland, they're actually doing what Alex Jones is telling you they're going to do here. They're actually saying, you, the private citizen, no matter what, no matter where you go, where you don't go, you will be vaccinated. And they can do it. Why? State-run health care. You get all your health care from the state. So the state tells you what health care you damn well will get. This is a little different. I don't like it. I'm not for it. But you do have the option to not take the injection. You can go work somewhere else. You can quit. Um, do I think they should be able to do this? I, as a libertarian, I'm torn. It's their company. It's their company. They should be able to set whatever reasonable standards they feel uh, is necessary for their employees. And as of right now, the mainstream thought is that vaccinations are safe and effective. I don't completely and totally agree with that. I don't completely and totally disagree with that. I think there's a place for all things. But on the other side, I'm also a, a personal libertarian. And if you don't want the injection, don't get it. And then, well, it spreads to patients who get it from workers. Well, then let the patients get vaccinated. See, that's the crap that I don't like about, well, if you don't get vaccinated, you're spreading the disease to somebody else. Hey, if you're worried about it and you think the vaccination's a good idea, you go get your ass vaccinated and don't worry about whether I get sick or not. And if the vaccination is as effective as you claim it is, then the person that gets vaccinated is protected by their choice and the person that doesn't is not protected by their choice. If you're that worried about it and a patient comes in, say, hey, have you been vaccinated for the flu this year? No? We'll add it to your bill. Here you go. I mean, that's just how I feel about the whole damn thing. But it is not Finland. Finland concerns me much more as being our potential future. Finland is, Mr. Smith, you've been vaccinated yet? No. Well, please report to the government facility to get vaccinated, or we'll send someone out to get you. I don't know if they're actually sending someone out to get you, uh, but they are saying you have to come get vaccinated. I mean, to me, that's going too far. Because like I said, what is what is the way that you enforce this? Is it by grabbing someone kicking and screaming, strapping them down to a gurney, and injecting them against their will? I mean, that's the only way I know that you could actually enforce something and legitimately call it a mandatory vaccination. Now, here's the other thing. If this is so important, why can I abstain for religious reasons? You have to ask yourself that. It's just like the nonsense with the TSA when everybody was going to protest. Oh, we need the naked body scanners. Oh my God, they could kill us all. And then on protest day, they just shut them down. We waited till the protest was over and then brought them back up. So the protesters had nothing to protest against. Well, if we're so endangered, somebody's going to blow us up that we need to have our bodies scanned naked or have somebody put their hands in our crotch. But we can just shut it off for three days to avoid protesting. We know they're full of crap. Well, if 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 the, if, if this, these these vaccinations are so necessary. But if I just believe a certain religion, I can say, well, I'm religiously abstaining from it, then come on. So here's what I think we should do as Americans. We should create a new religion. All right, And the religion would be, you can belong to any other church that you want, but this religion is a guiding moral compass in addition to your other religion. And basically it allows, that our belief is that religiously you should be allowed to abstain from anything that a law would allow anybody of any religious belief to abstain from. You don't denounce your faith. You don't change your faith. You just have a new religion. Maybe somebody should set that up. I ain't going to do it. I certainly don't want to compete with any other religious organizations, and that's not what I'm talking about. But how about that? How about just the adjunctive religion? 
That's what it is. I'm an adjunctive. So if you're a Catholic, you're an adjunctive Catholic. If you're a Baptist, you're an adjunctive Baptist. If you're a Jew, you're an adjunctive Jew. If you're a Buddhist, you're an adjunctive Buddhist. Right? And our belief is, religiously, that individuals have sovereignty and should have the ability to abstain from anything that any government says that any religion should have the ability to abstain from. And that's the entire thing. There's no church, there's no synagogue, there's nothing. It's just a label, and it's that's it. Probably wouldn't work. They'd probably get around that, but hey, I mean, if good for the goose, good for the gander, what happens to equal protection under the law if somebody actually sets that up? And uh, there's people that be like, oh, I couldn't do that because then I wouldn't really be whatever I say I am. Fine, hey, at least it's an option. But again, this is not about someone coming to your house and making you take a vaccination yet. I fear that we may enter that. The day that an American citizen has to submit to a blood uh, to a needle going in their arm, whether it's to pull blood out or put something in against their will and be held down for it, we have lost the republic. And in some places, that has happened already. People refusing to take a screening for drunken driving are being forced to give blood against their will. There's a point where we have to say no more. Again, I ask you, as I do once in a while, where is your point where you won't go any further? Where is your line in the sand? Has it been crossed already? And what are you going to do to change things based on what you want, not what I tell you you want? Last question's an easy one because it's actually my idea, I think. I've put it out on the air quite a few times. Uh, comes from John. John says, uh, what are your thoughts on hiding a main cache of weapons in your home, only having a few token weapons available at any given time, basically to protect them from burglars and or misguided law enforcement, as we saw in the aftermath of Katrina? And he goes on to some other things. But let me give you the basic answer to this. Yeah, I, I think the first couple of shows I did, I started talking about, that was one thing that you should do, at least in a time where um, the ante gets upped. So there is martial law and things like that going on. Or we, we have aftermath of a disaster. Take all of your guns and hide them in various places. And keep, you know, maybe one solid defensive weapon so you have it for its use. And a couple pieces of crap. That's what a $119 high point is for. That's what a $50 uh, uh, shotgun is for. And if you're, if they come to try to take your guns away, tell them you don't want them to. They don't have the constitutional authority. Yes, damn well, I have guns. Here they are, and you can't have them. And then if they want to take them away from you, don't get in a gunfight. Let them have them. And then go get one more out of your cash. I mean, that's how you deal with that situation. I will not be fully disarmed. And I will do everything I can to avoid that ever happening to me. The, we have had a Supreme Court decision. That came out after Katrina that said the federal government does not have the authority to do these things. And this kind of goes back to the other thing, but you know, earlier the question, are we extremists? Constitutionalist means extremist. You know what? Saying that I value my, my firearms and I value my right to own them and I will not allow myself to be illegally disarmed is not an extremist statement no matter how much the media wants to paint me as an extremist for saying that. Being a constitutionalist does not make me an extremist. If you're not a constitutionalist, what are you? Do you think we should throw away the Constitution, wipe our butts with it, flush it down the toilet? I mean, that's what I think some in the media would like to do. They love to run to the cloak of the Constitution whenever it serves them, but they crap on it the minute it doesn't serve them. See, what, what constitutionalist means, and this is why the mainstream and the media don't like it, is that I stand by it when it serves me 
And I stand by it even when it has something in it that I don't like or requires something that I don't like. That's an equal republic. We're all judged by the same laws. And even when we all look at it and go, man, I really don't want to do this, but we have to, if we really feel that way, then our choice is what? We go through the amendment process, which is very difficult for a reason. So, yes, 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 yes. Make sure you have at least some methods of self-defense cached away where they're not easily located. And yes, in an acute situation like a Hurricane Katrina, having sacrificial lambs, so to speak, that prevents the full-scale tear apart everything you own. Well, there's this guns, okay? We're going to catalog these and take them from you or what have you. Don't think it can't happen in America because it already did. And with that... Um, I'd like to end on a little bit more positive note, if I can, today. And it is that don't be afraid of who you are. Don't hide who you are. Don't hide what you are. Again, as I have said, it makes sense to not tell all your neighbors exactly how much food you have or where you keep it. There could come a time when it's necessary. And you want to, in that time, be able to help who you choose as you choose, instead of being overrun and have things taken from you. So it's not about wearing a shirt that says, hey, I'm a survivalist, ask me how to join. But it is about when these issues come up, speak about them rationally, calmly, and with confidence and competence. Know the subject matter. Know the, the standard idiotic objections of the mainstream and know how to counter them. Not with an argument, not with a fight, but with a question. Like I said, well, they're constitutionalists. Well, you're not. Let the person in the argument argue themselves. It's a much more effective way than trying to force your opinion down their throat. You're not? Well, no, I'm not. So you don't believe in the Constitution? Well, I do. So you're a constitutionalist, right? No. Well, are you or are you not? Do you believe in the Constitution? Do you believe it's the foundational law of our nation or not? Well, yeah, I do accept. Except when? It'll be amazing to watch that person argue themselves. Because we know in our hearts the foundational law of the nation has to be respected. But I don't like this part of it. Are you familiar with the amendment process? <laughs> you know? Well, it's hard to do. Well, why? Because most people don't want it. Oh! So that's our democratically led republic making a decision not to alter the foundational law of our land, right? But see, something has to be done. Well, what? See, that's how you handle people like that. Don't argue with them. You know? I mean, one of the most amazing things that ever happened to me in my life was the first time I met Valery Azanov. A uh, guy that was a former member of the KGB, Sistema Martial Arts Master, tough guy. Guy could kill you before you breathe. When I shook his hand, you know, out of respect, not out of like trying to be crushing, I shook his hand with a good, firm American handshake. And he gave me this loose hand. And it was actually one of the most disarming things that I've ever felt in my life. When someone that has confidence doesn't meet aggression with aggression, but meets aggression with simple acceptance encounters with their own belief that's intellectual martial arts my friend and that sets the opponent fighting themselves that's how you win an argument and it's not really an argument it's more of a debate so make the person's moral compass debate their outward bias and you stand in as the moderator that's how you win an argument with an idiot put them against themselves with that this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't.
Yeah.